Psalm 86, Psalm 86. And the thing about preaching is you really need to know what you're going to say. Uh, Preaching without knowing what you're going to say, dangerous. And especially in this battleship of a pulpit, our pastor for 50 years has made diligent preparation a hallmark of his, his ministry. He knows what he's, what he's saying when he comes into this sacred desk, and for that we're grateful. Uh, Psalm 86 is, a, is not about preaching, it's about praying, and praying is different than preaching. It's a common experience to not know what you're going to say in your prayer. Uh, it's a common experience to run out of words, to, to struggle in prayer. And, and I think we see that as David's prayer in Psalm 86 unfolds. And it reminds us of something the Puritans often said, that you need to pray until you pray. Pray until you pray. That's exactly what's happening in Psalm 86. That's the title of this sermon, Pray Until You Pray. Let's begin by reading Psalm 86, and then we'll talk about what that means uh, for us. Psalm 86, a prayer of David, verse one. Incline your ear, O Yahweh, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. You, O my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, Lord, for to you I cry all day long. Make glad the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. For you, Lord, are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Yahweh, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplications. In the day of my trouble, I shall call upon you, for you will answer me. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All nations whom you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and they shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous deeds. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Yahweh. I will walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I will give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with all my heart, and I will glorify your name forever. For your loving kindness towards me is great, and you have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, arrogant men have risen up against me, and a band of violent men have sought my life, and they have not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. Turn to me and be gracious to me. O grant your strength to your servant and save the son of your handmaid. Show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed because you, O Yahweh, have helped me and comforted This is the very word of the living God. Pray until you pray. That's what the Puritans used to say. 
And when it comes to praying, it's a common experience for us to not know what to say. Our hearts find themselves unable to express themselves. We run out of words. We struggle with articulating our hearts to God. Oftentimes we wrestle with spiritual coldness or a lack of desire to pray. And when we pray, there are times we just don't know what to say. We try to pour our hearts out to God, but nothing comes out. And I think that's why the Puritans encouraged each other to pray until they had prayed. In other words, prayer is an experience that takes effort on the part of the petitioner. It isn't always simple or easy, but sometimes a struggle is involved. Pray until you pray. D.A. Carson, in A Call to Spiritual Reformation, comments on this Puritan phrase. Pray until you pray. That's the Puritan advice. It does not simply mean that persistence should mark much of our praying, though admittedly, that is a point the scriptures repeatedly make. What they meant is that Christians should pray long enough and honestly enough at a single session to get past the feeling of formalism and unreality that attends not a little praying. We are especially prone to such feelings when we pray for only a few minutes, rushing to be done with a mere duty. If we pray until we pray, eventually we come to delight in God's presence, to rest in his love, to cherish his will. Such advice is not to become an excuse for a new legalism. There are startling examples of very short, rapid prayers in the Bible. But in the Western world, we urgently need this advice. For many of us in our praying are like nasty little boys who ring front doorbells and run away before anyone answers. Pray until you pray. It's that Puritan advice that reminds me of the lessons of Psalm 86. Psalm 86 is a different song because it's Davidic. And though there's lots of Davidic songs in the Psalter, in the third book where we find ourselves, this is the only song composed by David. And so it stands alone in its composition. It also has so much in common with so many other psalms of David and other authors. But it still is special. It's unique. Because David takes a good amount of time to get to the specifics of his request. The song, the prayer, is full of petitions. But the specifics of his petitions are prefaced by logic and theology, expressions of his own need and uh, 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 an articulation of the awareness that David has of who God is and what God has promised. In Psalm 86, David gives us a good example of how to pray until you've prayed. And as we follow his journey of prayer in his time of loneliness and affliction, and as we see David apprehend by faith what God has said and who God is, we learn how to pray. And so I think it's best we look at this song in three portions. And the first is verses one through seven. And I'd like to give it this heading. Our sovereign God hears prayer. Our sovereign God hears prayer. And I mean every word of that. Let me show you why I said it that way. Verse one. He begins with incline or 
turn your ear, O Yahweh. Answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. This is a direct plea to God. Not to some generic deity, but to the covenant God of Israel. That's why the name Yahweh is enlisted at the very outset of his prayer. He's talking about a specific God, the God who revealed himself, the God who called Israel to be his people, the God who delivered his people from the Exodus, the God who anointed King David to be the shepherd of his people. This is Yahweh, the one true God, the creator God, the covenant God, and David asks that God to incline his ear, anthropomorphic expression of uh, of God, a spirit does not have ears, but he asks God to turn his ear, to listen to him, and he He speaks to God by name. Four times he uses the name Yahweh in this prayer. Verse one, O Yahweh, answer me. Verse six, give ear. Similarly, O Yahweh, to my prayer and heed to the voice of my supplication. And then again in verse 11, teach me, O Yahweh, your way. I will walk intently in your truth. And then finally, the covenant name of God is used in the last verse, verse 17. Because you, O Yahweh, have helped me and comforted me. In 14 different ways, he pleased to God directly. Opening his song and closing his song, his prayer, with this same kind of language. With a direct request from God himself. A begging, a beseeching Uh, an asking of God to answer and to hear. And this is important to note. David also, at the outset, I think it's worth noting that he has a kind of logic in his prayer. It's not mindless babbling that Jesus warned us against, but it's a a very logical, uh, even an argument in his prayer. And that's featured in verse 1 in the first example as one particular word that's, that's really important to understand David's prayer logic. It's the word in your Bible, for. For I am afflicted and needy. It's a little Hebrew word. It's key in Hebrew, and it is key in English to understanding the prayer. But the word means for, or better translated, because. It's rational, it's it's logical. And so David speaks directly to God and then provides reasoning, motivation, logic and rationale for his prayer and for his request. And as he looks to God, he also has a simultaneous awareness that parallels of who God is with who David is. And so he says, turn your ear, O Yahweh, verse one, answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. David talks to his God and expresses to his God a true evaluation of himself. You see, prayer admits at the outset that we don't have what we need. When we cry out to God, we are saying to God that there's something that we lack. And David says, I'm afflicted, I'm vulnerable, and I'm needy, I'm poor. David is asking God to hear him. And and with that awareness, David knows he's going to be listening to God. Psalm 85, verse 8, probably a page before where you are right now. 
that author, the sons of Korah, say this, I will hear what God Yahweh will say, for he will speak peace to his people, to his godly ones. You see, the, the true prayer is mindful that we are needy and afflicted and is quick to ask God for help, but aware that we also need to be listening to him. Because the God we're praying to, verse two, the request is given, preserve my soul for, that's the second time he uses that Hebrew word key because he uses it nine times total in this psalm. Preserve my soul, save my soul for, I am a godly man. So David sees himself both as afflicted and needy and as godly. The Hebrew word behind godly there is the word hasid. It means loyal, loyal. David isn't saying that, that he has earned God's favor through things that he's done, that he's a perfectly righteous person. We know that's not the case from David's own story. I mean, Psalm 32 has already been read in the Psalter. David sinned big time. But that didn't stop David from expressing that he was godly. In other words, he was loyal. In other words, he was on God's side. David prays to God and reminds God that he is allegiant to God, that he belongs to God and God belongs to him. There is no other competition. And so he says, Preserve or save my soul, for I am a a godly man. You, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. And then we get to the heart of of David's understanding of prayer as we move towards verse 3. David's requested salvation in verse 2, preservation. And now he requests grace, something he'll repeatedly ask for all the way to the end of this prayer. He says, be gracious to me, O Lord. Now that's not the covenant name of God, Yahweh. This is a different title for God, and it's important that you note this, because I think it's, it's the, the theme of this song is this title for God. He begins by addressing him as Yahweh, but for, uh, in verse three and then seven times following, he'll use a different title. The Hebrew word is Adonai. You're familiar with it. It's usually just translated Lord. It could also be translated Master or Sovereign One or Sovereign God. The idea behind Adonai is Adonai is the Master. He's the Sovereign. He's the Lord. And the one petitioning Adonai is a servant, a slave, humble, lowly, and afflicted. That's why in verse 4, David says, the soul of your servants. And so when David speaks to God, he acknowledges his sovereignty. And prayer has to do that. I mean, there is no meaning or significance to prayer if our God is not sovereign. And so our sovereign God is asked by his servant to hear the prayer. Adonai, sovereign Lord, sovereign one, be gracious to me, for to you I cry out all day long. And he'll keep calling God the sovereign one. Verse four, for to you, O Adonai, O Lord, I lift my soul. Verse five, for you, O Lord, are good and ready to forgive. Verse eight, 
There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, Adonai, Master. Verse 9, before you, O Lord and Master, they shall glorify your name. Verse 12, I will thank you, O Sovereign, Glorious Lord and Master, my God, with all my heart, and glorify your name forever. And then in verse 15, but you, O Lord, Adonai, Sovereign God and Master, you are God of merciful compassion and grace. David prays, to a sovereign God, a God who rules and reigns, a God whose control of all things is absolute. And maybe this creates a dilemma in your mind because if we're petitioning God, but God is absolutely sovereign over all the affairs of of mankind, over every molecule in this universe, the question is why do we pray? If God is completely sovereign, then why do we pray? Well, the answer is we pray because God is completely sovereign. It's the sovereignty of God that gives us confidence that we can pray, knowing that our prayers don't turn God. They don't change the will of God. Our prayers involve us in what God is doing. The perfectly sovereign God who rules and reigns over this world. The one who is uh, sovereign completely over the affairs of, of mankind, of the high and the low, who controls every breeze and every storm, every wild animal and every army advancement. Everything in this world is under the auspices of the meticulous sovereignty of God. And for that reason we pray listening to him, knowing that he is working, and in our prayer and in our requests, mindful that his will must be done. And so we pray, hoping to be involved in what God is doing, desiring to be aware of of where God is, is directing this world, And that's how David's prayer has such confidence. His confidence is in the sovereignty of God. And he says, for, because I cry out to you, verse three, all day long. And then he shows us what fuels this prayer. And he'll give us a litany of things that fuel what in verse four he speaks of as gladness. What a great word, gladness. Make glad the soul of your servant. And now he gives reasons or rationale for that gladdening of his heart. David's in a place of affliction. He hasn't even said specifically what that affliction is. He won't until verse 14. But he's in this place where he needs God to gladden his heart. And so he's going to provide fuel for his prayer, reasons for his prayer, reasons that God should deliver and grant him grace. I'll give you an example. I'm a smoker of meats. I believe in in barbecue in a way that's different than most Californians. Uh, Most Californians say you want a barbecue and they get the hot dogs and the hamburgers out. This is not God's will for your life. (laughs) Barbecue is to cook low and slow over smoke. And I've been involved in the science and and art of barbecue for for much of my life. You can tell by my shape. And I recently changed from a 
a charcoal kind of smoker where you control airflow, we got too scientific there, to a stick burner where I, I burn actual wood logs and controlling temperature is a very difficult thing. Instead of messing with my vents as I've done all my life, now I have to put fuel in just the right amount of fuel to keep that temperature 225 so that the brisket is nice. I'm not against hot dogs. I'll eat a hot dog right now. It's just not barbecue. Call that grilling. Just an additional lesson. So in the same way that those, those, that those pieces of white oak on the fire provide fuel that will make that clean smoke come through the chamber and, and cook and render that fat and meat and get it just right. David's prayers are fueled by something. There's logs being thrown in the fire as David asks for salvation and grace. And he lists them out in his prayer, starting with verse four. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, here's the first bit of fuel, I lift up my soul. I lift up my soul. That's a, that's an, a pretty common phrase in the Psalms. But it's a difficult one, isn't it? How do you lift up your soul? Well, the best way to understand that is to have Scripture show us what does it mean to lift up your soul? Psalm 24, I think, is a, a good example of what that phrase means in the Psalter. Psalm 24, in verse 4, it says, He who has clean hands and a pure heart, who has not lifted up his soul to falsehood and has not sworn deceitfully. And then again on Psalm 25, verse 1. To you, O Yahweh, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Do not let me be ashamed. Do not let my enemies exult over me. From these two uses, I think we can understand the lifting up of the soul to be an expression of single-minded devotion. It's why David prays in Psalm 24 with a clean hands and pure heart to not lift up his soul to falsehood. You see, the exclusivity of David's worship is the first part of the fuel for his prayer. For to you directly, O Adonai, O Lord, verse four, I lift up my soul. This single-minded devotion is expressed by David knowing that God, the sovereign God, will meet all his needs. A second bit of fuel is in verse five. For because to you, O Lord, sovereign one, you are good and ready to forgive and abundant in loving kindness, to all who call to you. If the first bit of fuel is single-minded devotion to God and God alone, the second bit of fuel he puts in this uh, prayer furnace to stoke this this flame of, of desire and passion towards God is his understanding of the character of God. That's what verse five is all about. Verse five is theology. It's a word about God. And David has good theology. He knows God. And so what does he say about this sovereign God? He calls him sovereign. And then he says he's good. 
and he's ready to forgive. That's to put in, a, in an adjectival intensive form. You could translate it all forgiving. And then he says abundant in loving kindness to all who call out to you. In verse five, and then again in verse 10, and again in verse 13, David will reiterate the character of God. And when we don't know what to pray, and when our prayers seem stuck, a great place to go beyond the single-minded devotion that we must have to God is to remind us and to remind God that we know who he is, that we know what he's like, that we are aware of his character, his goodness, his compassion and forgiveness, his loving kindness to all who call out to you. But there's more fuel in verse six. He says, give ear, O Yahweh, nearly the same expression of verse one, asking God, the covenant God, to listen to him, give ear to my prayer, and give heed to the voice of my supplication. Well, what kind of fuel is this? It's simply a a repetition of expression of verse one. He's saying the same thing. And though there is poetic beauty here, I think what's being shown to us is something that's commonly expressed to us as one of the keys to prayer. He says it once, he says it again, and he says it in another way. What's that called? Well, that's called perseverance insistence. I mean, Jesus himself taught his disciples that they should be borderline annoying in their prayers. Isn't that what he said? What do you call that in the middle of the night? You want me to stop, don't you? It's because it's annoying. And Jesus says, that lady's doing prayer right because she just keeps on knocking. And knocking and knocking. And here's David. Turn your ear, O Yahweh. Answer me, verse 1. And here's David, verse 6. Give ear, O Yahweh, to my prayer and give heed to the voice of my supplication. And he's putting fuel on the fire. He's saying my single-minded devotion is, is one of these pieces of fuel. Your character, O God, is another piece. This perseverance and insistence in prayer is yet another piece. And then in verse seven, in the day of trouble, I shall call upon you for you will answer me. Final piece of fuel in understanding how to pray to a sovereign God. What do you call that? Verse seven, I shall call upon you in trouble. That's what's happening in this prayer. But then he says, for you will answer me. Maybe that sounds like presumption to you. But to me, that sounds like conviction and faith. And so single-minded devotion with the character of God, with the insistence and repetition of his prayer and the perseverance in his prayer mingled with a certainty that God will answer, that God always hears us, that God will respond and He sees this and he just keeps stoking the fire of his prayer. He doesn't give up. He doesn't ding-dong ditch. He doesn't 
Let his troubles overtake him. He keeps on praying. Our sovereign God hears prayer. And so when we are confronted with the absolute sovereignty of God in places like Ephesians 1.11, that God works all things to the counsel of his will, we can be fully assured that God is always doing something. And though we don't see it and we don't know what it is, we pray anyway and ask God to help us become aware and become a part of what God is already working. God will answer your prayers. And so verse one, he asks God to answer me. And in verse seven, he asserts, for you will answer me. What a bold prayer to our sovereign God, exactly the kind of prayers that Jesus asked his disciples to pray. The second portion before us is in verses eight through 13. And if the the first portion is our sovereign God hears prayer, the second portion is a bit of prayer thinking that I, I don't think we employ enough. Let's call it this. Our sovereign God is incomparable. It's captured well in verse eight. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, Adonai. This is simply comparison. And I don't think we compare God enough because if we did, we would think more often of how good our God is. You see, in the Old Testament world, there was a, a litany of gods and goddesses that competed for the attention of God's covenant people. Atheists were a rare creature in that ancient world. Instead, people worshipped Baal, the Asherahs. The, they worshipped Molech. And to compare our God to the Other gods is something that happens all over the Old Testament. Isaiah 46, 55, everywhere in the Psalms, God is expressed to be better, more powerful, more real than all these other false gods. And that kind of comparison fuels this prayer and helps David to see that that the sovereignty of his God, the God he's praying to, the God he rejoices in this sovereignty, he calls this this God sovereign Adonai three times in this section alone in verse eight and verse nine and in verse 12. But he begins with this expression of God's uniqueness that he's incomparable. There's no one like you among the gods. And he moves this comparison from heaven, verse eight a, when he says there's no one like you among the gods to nature, when he says in verse 8b, nor are there any works like yours. Uh, Works in the Psalms are not the things God does primarily. Uh, Psalm 19, verse 1, the heavens uh, show forth the glory of God, his works display. So his works are the things that he's created. That's primarily what, what the Psalms mean when they talk about God's works. It's talking about his creation. So starting with the realm of the gods, the heavens, God is utterly unique. And then moving to the, all of nature, God's works, everything God made, there is no one like him. 
And then in verse 9, all the nations that you have made. Now he looks at the, the crown of God's creative activity, his make, making of mankind. And he looks not just at individual people, but at all of mankind. The nations, usually depicted as the enemies of God's people in the Psalms, are here shown to be part of God's master working and evidence that no one compares to God. Because in the end, David says, verse 9, all the nations which you have made shall come and worship before you, O sovereign one, and they shall glorify your name. How did David know that? He didn't have Philippians 2. Every knee will bow, every tongue confess that Jesus is Christ. David didn't have that bit of information about the the glorious, final, spectacular reign of God over all his creation when either in love or in submission, every knee will bow to the glory of God in Christ Jesus. David didn't have that full picture, but David had enough theology that he understood just on the basis of God creating everyone that everyone ultimately will have to acknowledge him. Either by terror or by love, every knee will bow. Every nation will come and worship. Part of that's fulfilled in the church. A beautiful example of that in that messianic psalm, the end of Psalm 22 talks about the nations all coming to give tribute to the one true king. You can look at that on your own. But for David, it's just another example of God's uniqueness. Not only does he look at heaven and nature and mankind, but verse 10, he says, history proves that there's no one like God. For you are great, verse 10, and do wondrous deeds. You are God, you alone. And now his works are his creation. His deeds are the things that he does. And so he has done all of this, everything in Israel's life in the past, everything in David's life in the past as he's been saved and delivered, as he's been ministered to, as God has cared for him. David shows that there is no one like God. God is better, incomparable, unique. And that's why he's so worthy of our praise. And so the only God who hears our prayers. Last Friday, I rejoiced because Molech, that Canaanite God who insisted on the sacrifice of children, who is a competitor against Yahweh for in the book of Leviticus, in Exodus, and some of the poetic passages, Molech was this bloodthirsty God that demanded child sacrifice. And he was codified in Roe v. Wade in our country in 1973. And I rejoiced last Friday when that got overturned. You know what that is? Listen to what this is. That's God answering prayer. That's 50 years some of you have been praying. I mean, if you're, if you're my age or 73 and after, you've only lived in a world with Roe v. Wade. And to know that God in his mercy heard our prayers 
And, and critics of the pro-life movement say, well, it only make maybe 12%, you know, 14%, something like that, of babies will, will be impacted by that. What's 12% of 1.4 million slaughtered in their mother's wombs in America alone? Praise God he answers prayers. Keep praying, keep praying, especially in this Molex state of California. Keep praying. God is able because you know the God they pray to? He doesn't hear them. I mean, that's 1 Kings 18, isn't it? In that case, it's, it's the God Baal. And it's Jezebel versus Elijah. And Elijah has this showdown with the prophets on Mount Carmel. And, and he goes to toe-to-toe with these, this pagan deity and all these prophets you know, heap up their sacrifices and offerings. And they, they pray and they wail and they cut themselves. And Elijah says, put water on mine. And then he just says, Yahweh, torch it. ATD version. And God consumes it with fire. And he proves that he's the only God who hears prayer. You see, when you remind yourself that our God is incomparable, that he's unique, that he's the only true God, I mean, that's the logic that Paul uses in in 1 Corinthians 8, isn't it? When he's talking about issues of conscience and meat sacrifice to idols, He says, therefore, concerning the eating of things sacrificed to idols, we know that there is no such thing as an idol in the world and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is but one God, the Father from whom are all things and we exist for him and one Lord Jesus Christ by whom are all things and we exist through him. All those lowercase gods bowed down to this one capital God, the only true God, because people do worship all kinds of false gods. That doesn't make the God real. It makes their worship real and dangerous and idolatrous and wicked. People worship the God of sexual immorality in this world today. They serve him with their heart, soul, and mind. They parade for him. They cry for him. They fight for him. They long to please the God of sex. But that God does not hear their prayers. There's only one God that does. And so when we see God as incomparable, we have confidence that he is the one that we pray to, that no one else can hear prayers. Biblical monotheism recognizes that there's other objects of worship. It just calls them out as vain, false, and idolatrous without substance, without reality, without power, and they make their worshipers like themselves. But Yahweh's uniqueness among the gods and over creation, among the nations and all the earth and in everything he's ever done shows that he is wonderfully unique. What a God to pray to. Third and final portion of this psalm. Well, before we get to the third and final portion, David responds to God's uniqueness just in a moment of worship. Look at it, verse 11. Teach me, O Yahweh, your way. 
The Hebrew word way is like our word for road or path. It's a place to travel. And so asking God to show him, show David his way, God's way is to ask for his steps to be directed. Verse 11, I will walk intently in your truth. Unify my heart to fear your name. In light of God's sovereignty, David is asking for guidance. And not just God's superintendence of all things in the world, but not just big picture sovereignty. David sees that he needs God to lead and direct him to go the right way. And this is wonderful because this is something we all want. We all want to know God's will for our lives. We all want to go where God wants us to go, do what God wants us to do. When we face decisions in our, in our work or, or in ministry or in your family, you want God's direction and leading, don't you? You want to be on his path. And so it's right to ask God to show us his way. But David shows us that the most obvious way to determine God's will for your life, verse 11, teach me, O Yahweh, your way. I will walk intently in your truth. How do you know God's way? His path, his road, his truth. This is the, this is the answer. God's not trying to withhold his will from your life. It's not that you need, you know, you know some, some skywriting from heaven or some, some voice to whisper in and say, go left, turn right. God has spoken. And his will for our lives is that we walk in obedience. I will walk intently in your truth. Unify my heart to fear your name. The biggest danger in getting out of God's will is being double-hearted. James talks about it in James 1.6, right? The double-minded man. The psalmist describes it as being double-hearted, Psalm 12.2. It's to not be unified. It's not have integrity. It's not to have that, that kind of lifting up of the soul, that single-minded devotion. And here it's called unify my heart, a, a unique expression in the Psalms. Unify my heart to fear your name. David knows that the best way that he can find God's will is simply by obeying God. That's always the best way. You wanna know God's will for your life? Walk in obedience. Spurgeon comments on this verse saying, having taught me one way, give me one heart to walk therein. For too often I feel a heart and a heart, a double heart. Two natures contending, two principles struggling for sovereignty. Our minds are apt to be divided between a variety of objects like trickling streamlets which waste their force in a hundred rivulets. Our great desire should be to have all our life floods poured into one channel and to have that channel directed towards the Lord alone. A man of divided heart is weak. The man of one object is the man. God who created the bands of our nature can draw them together, tighten, strengthen, and fasten them. And so braced and inwardly knit by his uniting grace, we shall be powerful for good, but not otherwise. To fear God is both the beginning, the growth, and the maturity of wisdom. Therefore, should we be undividedly given up to it, heart and soul. Mark it down and ask God to unify your heart 
to fear and reverence his name. And then you'll know what the will of God is. Look how much peace comes to David's prayer. Verse 12, I'll thank you, O Lord my God, with all my heart and glorify your name forever. There's just increasing confidence and he hasn't even expressed his great need yet. Verse 13, for your loving kindness towards me is great. Again, the loyal love of God is is tied into David's life and you'll deliver my soul from the lowest sheol. That's the danger he's facing and he's confident that his loyalty to God is matched by a greater loyalty, loving kindness, God's loyal love that God has towards us. Okay, now the final portion. Our sovereign God is sufficient. Uh, Verses one through seven, our sovereign God hears our prayers. Verses eight through 13, our sovereign God is incomparable and verses 14 to 17, he concludes his, his prayer by getting to the meat of his request and showing us that he knows that his God, his sovereign God, is sufficient. Look at verse 14. Oh God, arrogant men have risen against me, and a crowd of violent men have sought my soul, and they have not put you in front of them. These are familiar folks in the Psalter. They're called arrogant men or uh, insolent men. Davidson calls them people oblivious to God's instruction. They're depicted repeatedly in Psalm 119, insolent men. They're those who do not listen to God, who do not obey God, people who are ignorant of God, people who are oblivious to God's instruction, people who are against God. You know anybody like that? We used to be people like that. We're surrounded by people like that. And David has people like that who want to kill him and send his soul to Sheol. And so he says, God, the arrogant men, the the oblivious ones to God's instruction have risen against me. And then he calls them a crowd of violent men. I think the King James calls them something like a band of of ruffians. And so there's, there's a violent threat here. They've sought after my soul, David says. And they've not put you in front of them. It comes back to the the difference between a believer and an unbeliever. A a Christian isn't smarter than an an unbeliever. It's just that we have a different allegiance. That's the primary difference. These violent offenders are not in front of Yahweh. Their allegiance is not to God. God. And so David then, in verse 15, does something that we should often do in prayer. He says, but you, O Lord, in comparison to his circumstances, his enemies, those who are his greatest threat, what this prayer has been driving at all along is in verse 14. People are trying to kill and undo David and get rid of him, but look where his focus goes. It's on the enemies for a moment of petition and then it goes straight back to God's character. Verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God of compassion and grace, slow to anger and abundant in loving kindness and truth. What is that? Well, it's nearly the same expression that he gave to us in the first section of this song when he spoke of the Lord's goodness and all forgiving character and abundance and loving kindness in verse five. But here he says it so much more robustly, doesn't he? 
That's because he's quoting Exodus 34, 6 verbatim, word for word. David sees the danger and he immediately appeals to Scripture. What a wise way to move forward in prayer, to pray until you've prayed, to get out the word of God that you've internalized and speak it to your own heart and speak it to God. David appeals to scripture and it's on scripture that he rests his case. He knows this is true about God because he knows the word of God. He knows who God is and who God will, what God will do because God has told him that's who God is and that's what God will do. God is compassionate and merciful. God is a God of grace. He's gracious towards sinners. His anger is slow and he is abundant in loyal love and abundant in truth or faithfulness. And so David quotes the Bible and in verse 16 he says, turn to me and grant me your grace. Oh, give your strength to your servant." Here David is once again asking for grace. It's been the predominant request. He's asked for deliverance, but he keeps asking for grace. That's because he knows everything God gives him is undeserved. But there's more to grace than that. David gets it. It's why he says, your grace and your strength are what your servant needs in verse 16. He's lowly. His mom is a handmaiden. He's She's a servant in the house and he's just a son of a house servant and he's asking this sovereign God for grace and strength and salvation because grace is strength and because grace brings salvation. Paul said to Timothy, to Timothy 2, to my son be strong in the grace. Grace is not just unmerited favor, it's strengthening It's enlivening, it's emboldening. Ask God for grace because God is gracious. And so David asks for grace. And at the end of verse 16, your salvation to the son of your handmaiden. David asks for deliverance. And a final request in verse 17, show me a sign for good that those who hate me may see it and be ashamed. He just needs a glimmer here. And I don't know what that would look like in David's mind, what exactly he was asking for, but it was something that would vindicate him in front of his enemies. It was something that would bolster his heart and his confidence. It was something that would make David know that that God is hearing him. He asked for a sign for good. I think a good way to think about that is that David is asking for a testimony. He wants to be able to testify He wants his enemies to see that God was with him all along, that their schemes were thwarted because of God's grace. So he asks for grace, verse 15. He asks for deliverance, verse 16. He asks for a testimony, verse 17. And a final because. Because you, O Yahweh, have helped me and comforted me. I love that word comforted. You know it from Psalm 23, verse four. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I shall fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff comfort me. Comfort is hope. Comfort is help. Comfort is renewed strength. And that's what David sees 
Is he still in trouble? Likely. Nothing has happened. Nothing has expressed that his testimony is completed. But he has so much confidence that he's able to close this prayer by saying, you, O Yahweh, have helped me and comforted me. You see, God is sovereign and God is sufficient to meet our needs. He hears our prayers. He is like no other in his incomparable, holy uniqueness. And he is sufficient in his grace, his salvation, his deliverance. A final word from Jesus. In, back to Matthew 6. We've heard it two different ways already. I read it in the scripture reading We sang it with the choir. But I want you to know that the kind of prayer we just learned about, the praying till you pray, is not foreign to those who've been taught to pray by Jesus. Because Jesus learned to pray. And it would have been passages like Psalm 86 that taught that young child, Jesus, to pray. And so when Jesus prays, In Matthew chapter six, who does he pray to? Well, he prays to our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, the one whose kingdom comes and will be done. What do we call that? That's Adonai, that's sovereignty. It's the same as Psalm 86. And when Jesus prays and he teaches us to pray, he shows that we have needs, real needs. So Matthew six, verse 11 says, give us this day our daily bread. Or in Psalm 86's version, I am afflicted and needy. I mean, it lines up exactly the same. In Matthew 6, verse 12, what's he talking about? This forgiveness of our debts as we've forgiven our debtors. Well, that's simply the unique grace of God. David's been hammering on his need for grace for 17 verses. And then in Matthew 6, 13, Jesus says, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Well, that's single-minded devotion. That's a united heart. That's lifting our soul to heaven. The Lord's prayer that he taught the disciples was not revolutionary and new. Just because the Pharisees has messed it all up, praying in the streets with trumpets and show-off stuff. Psalm 86 It's all there. When we learn to pray from David and we learn to pray from David's greater son, we're hearing the same lesson. And they're telling us to focus on the sovereignty of God. Be aware of our human need. Lean into his unique grace and his incomparable nature. Be single-minded as you seek after God and his will. And then you'll have prayed until you've prayed. Father, thank you for your word. Such a, a treasure store for us. Thank you for your incomparable sovereignty, your sufficiency, that we can petition you and know that you hear us Father, we're grateful. And we ought to be because of how glorious you are and how merciful you've been to us at Calvary. Friends, if you don't know how to pray, 
If you're with us today and you're not a Christian, I'd just like to invite you to respond to the grace of God you've been hearing about. Our prayer room is open to my right, to your left, under those exit signs. There's men and women who would love to meet with you, to pray with you. Because all this this glory that we're talking about, this this prayer that presses after God, fundamentally, it's Calvary-based. It's because of the cross where every divine requirement was satisfied by Jesus. And so God, send us on our way. We're gospel people who love your son, who are grateful for the encouragement to press into prayer. In Jesus' matchless name, amen.